For our next podcast in the Narratives of Soil series, we are welcoming Sean Ross, an interdisciplinary designer interested in exploring the intersection of nature and technology and how we can create a symbiotic relationship between the two. Within his work, he is looking at emerging scientific developments and using design as a tool to create sustainable interventions that stimulate conversation and even ignite action around how we can build a brighter future. To introduce, I'll read you a short extract from his project text, Transmitting Nature. We live in a world dominated by digital technology. It pervades every aspect of our daily lives, but so few of us understand how it all works. With this ignorance comes a disassociation with the materiality of these technologies. The way in which we mine these materials is devastating to both people and our environment. His approach to this problem was to create a counterfactual history that makes use of our contemporary knowledge to explore the possibility of re-engineering the hardware behind our digital technology, maintaining greater sympathy for and working in collaboration with nature. To achieve this, he built a biocomputer. Well, the majority of my practice sort of uh, is looking at the intersection between like design um, and design technology and nature. So it's almost like a, a, a weird Venn diagram of where the, the two very disparate fields kind of like collide. And it's in that kind of like small spot in the middle that I'm trying to see if there's uh, like new opportunities to create more symbiotic relationships between the two. So my projects all seem to gravitate without intention towards mud of some kind, uh, what be it as like a building material or a source of some sort of like um, biomaterial. So most recently it was in a biocomputer which was powered by microbial fuel cells which run on mud or the bacteria found in mud. Yeah so kind of and I think that's what that's what I was thinking like what comes first is it the um, bacteria in the mud or is it mud? like are you generally drawn to mud because you find something within it that is going to serve the purpose within your project? I think it's more accidental like uh, each time where it's it's, I think I f- what I find quite interesting about mud is it, it is like this sort of this weird resource that we have that is completely plent- uh, plentiful. So it's sort of every time you don't have to worry about sustainability issues whenever you're really using mud because it is just such a there is such an abundance of it. And I think it's just weirdly the way my brain takes projects. It's weirdly the way it kind of just goes. Yeah, it's interesting that idea of abundance. And I think what's quite nice about your work is that uh yes you're working with a material in abundance but there are many materials that we kind of perceive to be in abundance and therefore use them um and overuse them and then cause problems in that respect but what's Mm. quite nice i think is that you're using what lives within the mud so it's also it's not like you're changing the properties of it drastically and you're kind of keeping or what i understand is that you're keeping the ecosystem alive yeah i think it mainly especially with the microbial fuel cells that's very much the case because essentially once i'm uh, done with it I think some of the bacteria that lives in it eventually dies off because it's been taken out of the its environment but it you just get left with this dried up kind of dried mud at the end of the project and then it can just be returned out to the earth or into added into a compost heap as a bit of biomass um, yeah. and gen- it's just completely benign and it's super easy to work with I think there's been other projects where I've kind of because uh, mud's generally made of like the three constituent parts of like silt sand um and clay so Mm -hmm. i think on one of the projects when i was working with it i was actually separating it out using gravitational distillation to try and get the clay off the which is the lightest particle of it 
off of the top um, and then trying to use that for ceramics. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the that's the most I've ever kind of processed or kind of removed the clay or the earth or mud from its original point. And even at the end of that, though, it becomes it you put it into a separate its own cycle because essentially once the clay you finish with the fired clay, you can then just break it down and use it as a grog in like virgin clay. So it can continue having like a use. Um, and it's just one industrial step away from what it naturally was. And the rest, the silt and sand can then just be uh, either just put back into nature or you can then try and extract the sand itself is already is quite a taxed resource as well. So, yeah, right. So would that be so kind of separating soil in this way or mud in this way? Is that something that you see as being a kind of alternative when we get to the point that we've like, used all those other resources up or... I'd, I'd kind of hope not there's a like it's good that mud isn't really overused and mm. because of the fact that it does build up basically the landscape if people started it'd just be another means to mine the landscape and I don't think that's really what we want but I think for from like a craft sense if you wanted to if you wanted, say, to use it as an aggregate, like needed sand as an aggregate, or wanted to try and make get your own sand from an un, uh, untraditional source to make glass or something, it could be an interesting project. But I think only at like a more artisanal scale. I don't think it would work if you tried to take it any further. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess there's also a problem. I mean, there's almost like, I feel, especially within our course and the kind of things that we explore there's almost like how can we explore this and show the qualities of it and the potentials of it but without promoting it as something the new thing to be mass produced the new thing to be exploited right it's always i think that's always a problem with the majority of like the kind of material future realm of things is it's like whether or not it should be mass produced is always a problem but then it's almost like mass production itself is kind of the problem but it's one that's so entrenched it's like really difficult to kind of break so it's trying to find ways to patch and mend at this point in time so can you tell us a bit more about the microbial fuel cells and the process how that works they're they're actually relatively simple but again it's like uh, like a big part of the most recent project was uh, of the transmitting nature project was was to try and look using a contemporary understanding of science and try to create like a counterfactual history of how we could have developed technology differently had we known what we know now. Um, and I think the microbial fuel cells are a really great example of this because it's something that's so, so simple and been around like the ability to do it has been around for so long, but no one's really looked at it because it hadn't really we didn't have the hindsight we now have or the awareness of how it worked that we now have. Um, but essentially it works. There's a, um, it's called Geobacter and there's different species of it. Uh, and it's generally found in river mud or anaerobic mud environments. Uh, so sometimes it's like flooded fields could probably have a high level of it. Um, and the one I think I've been working from, but haven't never got to fully confirm is uh, Geobacter sulfurreducens, which can actually eat pollutants out of the water, uh, such as like sulfides and stuff. Um, And then there's another one which is called Geobacter methylreducens, which couldn't actually eat like uh, eats iron pollution in water. So can metabolize that and then it produces electrons as a result of metabolizing these, uh, these impurities. 
so like a lot in the lab when they're being used it's like they normally uh instead of working with mud they'll work with like a cocktail of like activated sludge which is like a byproduct of sewage treatment um so it's like a really condensed version of it uh but with my own it's it's the river mud and i've i've got one of the cells here actually to kind of just give a visual like aid on it um and essentially it's like two electrodes that are placed into the into the mud mm. or one that's exposed to it right directly and sort of like covered uh, fully by it and then i've used a ceramic membrane uh, which allows the uh, electrons to pass through it because of the moisture that it that holds right. so it kind of acts as like a go-between but prevents allows the core to remain um dry because you need uh, airflow for the process to work so you need one electrode exposed to oxygen and the other one's completely submerged and then the bacteria so is that why the carbon's on the outside the carbon yeah, there's so you have the carbon on the outside as one electrode and then carbon on the inside is the second mm. uh, and then each with a wire connected to it um, and the the carbon kind of pulls the electrons that are being emitted towards it uh, and attracts the the geobacter and it produces a biofilm on the outside uh, and then uh, as you, the longer you kind of leave it you have to put a on the far end you have to put a something that will conduct the electricity through so it's just a simple resistor here and it basically just means that the geobacter will just start metabolizing on the outside producing electrons and then secreting them through its like little pie pili like nano wires on its outside on the outside and then the carbon electrodes basically the current will just flow between them and then pull up through into the resistor so it just creates a closed circuit and then what i started doing is creating like a, f a few of these cells and then trying to run them all in parallel through to a capacitor which basically just stores the energy so like a battery but one that j it just releases energy in a slightly different way that's basically how they work um i think i've got some more kind of in-depth illustrations in the thesis i wrote so i did the illustrations of how each component of my uh, biocomputer worked. So it's sort of a bit easier to see with like the visual aid. Yeah, so last time we spoke as well, what was quite nice is when you were talking about the, it was like how we were talking a bit about how you kind of, it's something you have to keep alive, isn't it? This microbial fuel cell, you have to feed it. Can you tell us a bit more about that kind of, that ritual and how and what that those implications might be for kind of making electricity from this in the future? Um, it basically becomes kind of like an actual physical world Tamagotchi in a sense. <laughs> like you, you have to keep feeding, especially was when you're removing the mud from like the river environment, and then the bacteria in that river has will have formed based on what food stock was coming in for it. So say if there was like a like higher amount of like iron like flowing into this river from some like mining operation or something you're more likely to have uh, geobacter uh, metal reducings in that river. So you're trying to like replicate some of this like feedstock. So do you uh, need so understanding of kind of what's coming into that river and therefore what that mud Not in, because of the fact that I couldn't identify and I was having to take it from so many different sources. I just, again, just did like a, what you'd normally feed um, bacteria in a lab environment. So I was just feeding it a, um, a solution of nutrient broth 
which is like different types of uh, nutrients that are used to feed bacteria. Uh, and then I think I had a sodium acetate as well to try and I think that was designed to try and keep like the carbon levels like balanced. I think this was again, I was working with Shem from the uh, Grow Lab at CSM uh, and this was his particular recipe. But I was having to yeah feed them. You have to, it, in that sense of it becoming like a weird kind of pet, you have to keep monitoring it. So with the fuel cells, I'd have to monitor the activity of each fuel cell by using a voltmeter and sort of like checking the voltmeter and seeing, because it runs on like millivolts. So you're not getting huge amounts of current. Um, but I'd constantly be checking the millivolts to see if it was growing, if it was doing well. And you could, like, if you put it onto a graph, you would be able to actually like kind of map the rise and the rise and fall of it. Yeah, so but then it's that. yeah, it's then kind of you reach like a maximum kind of amount that it's putting out, and then it's just trying to keep it alive at that point. Okay, so you can't really run them in perpetuity. I think it's it. Yeah, they're they're slightly more like demanding than a plant. Okay, and also kind of disposable, but it's but in that way, it's fine because disposable in the sense that that mud would just go back, and you'd maybe collect more mud. Yeah, and you keep replenishing and taking. And I guess you'd like you'd want to charge something up, right? It wouldn't. It would be more. You'd be charging a battery with various fuel cells that you were kind of feeding and updating, and then you'd use that battery to power something else. If you were, if you didn't have any like feedstock, I mean, one thing going forward, uh, I'm, I want to experiment with different feedstocks and see if I can just use like a, a direct carbon, uh, just like a charcoal or a soot or something, to see if that helps feed it, or experiment like with just different recipes. But I th the, the beauty of it as well is like if you d just don't have a feedstock, if the energy just runs off and starts going down, you can just replace it. You just have to deal with that sort of build up, almost like charging time as it builds up again. So it won't be as efficient and you won't get as much out of the mud, but it's not like it's a waste product because it's it's just mud. So mm -hmm. you can just dump it, refill it and keep going. And and what kind of... what? what are the potentials of these fuel cells if we can kind of refine this technology to a level where or there could be a more kind of reliable system what do you i think because the person who helped me design my fuel cells and like advised on it uh, was professor yanis loropoulos from the bristol bioenergy center um, and he was really generous and gave me like a full-on like hour-long chat on zoom going through like meticulously all these different aspects uh, and i think his research is quite interesting and I don't know it in and out again I'm probably not allowed to know it in and out but it's he again working with the activated sludge and like more like sewage treatment so it's like if you can create and his microbial fuel cells are a lot less ad hoc than mine so it's like with proper like more sub, like substantial materials so it's like more of a systems-based approach that can last longer and just having to replace certain like filter systems and stuff uh, but I think his kind of work would be able to turn, like, I think what he was sort of saying is that he could turn sewage waste into a direct energy drive. So using the bacteria from the sewage plants, the waste of the sewage plants would be able to actually just generate electricity that could then go into the grid. So it's like providing an additional energy source. But that was the gist that I got from from our sort of conversation. Um, but I think that's the kind of idea of where the energy would go uh, in more of a real term sense of how like the mud uh, microbial fuel cells work. There was uh, a researcher 
uh, working on, I think it was actually funded by the Bill's, Bill Gates Foundation as well, uh, developing microbial fuel cells that can be built like out in um, isolated areas, especially or like villages and like far flung corners of African countries that don't have a regular like power supply, a regular power supply and things like charging their phones is really difficult and quite expensive i think it's like 50 cents to charge your phone which in like translation can actually end up being like quite a lot of money just for that so being able to use mud um i think the ingredients list for that was uh manure mud graphite sheets and a few cables um and then it allows them to have like a a small little device that will charge their phone in 24 hours amazing so it's got some yeah more direct applications already that would be any mud that they could find around them yeah i think again when the the mud is waterlogged i think it's sort of a bit easier but i know that there are different types there are different sort of species and different types of bacteria and there's quite a few electricity generating ones that you may be able to find in other types of earth but generally my rule was always to try and find use mud that was submerged um and has working with mud in this way changed your perception of the material yeah again i think it was like a growing realization of how much you can do with it again the fact that it came into so many different projects in such different ways has actually like kind of i didn't realize i was doing it and that's almost i think quite telling is the fact that it's versatile enough that it just kept coming up in my head as like a viable sort of use there's also a bit of a love hate kind of growing with it because it's quite difficult to work with when you're trying to keep like the bacteria alive in it but then when you're trying to do things like sort of take the clay out of it but you're only getting a very small amount of clay versus the amount of mass you're getting so in both cases it's involved me having to traipse across london and england trying to gather large quantities of mud and it it's exhausting <laughs> like it's it, having to carry enough mud back to make sure you have that's enough mud that's usable uh, mm -hmm. without a car has been a nightmare i think i've taken like mud from uh it's quite nice where i'm living now hackney marshes is available so i was able to get some mud samples from hackney marshes today uh but in other times I've had to take like the tube out of London up to like Cockfosters uh, to and like walk a mile out into a field to then try and fill up a large container of mud and carry it back. I've even gone out to like Cambridge here to try and just get get the stuff but like also it's always a gamble because you don't know how active the geobacter if any is going to be. Mm. So there's been a few samples where I've come back and it's been too the mud's been really rich in sand and it's not had any geobacter or any any of the bacteria is after so it's quite yeah, disheartening. So what is the perfect composition that you're looking for when you're on a hunt for geobacter? My general rule is mud that like just beneath water um the water level and you want it to be closer to a muck than like a silt or a sand you want it and ideally as well I, I, I think I read this at one point and it's generally kind of proven true the more it stinks like the better because it means it's, there's more like an active kind of um, biome going on in there. And it seems to be, yeah, the bacteria in the, the, the smellier mud seems to be more fruitful. God, you should come down here, actually. And we've got um, huge amounts of mud in the rivers down here. Very, we used to mudlark in it as kids. Um, very smelly, very thick, mm. just meters of the stuff. 
That'd be <laughs> great. Set something up. I mean, it would be interesting to do like a kind of typology of microbial fuel cells from different mud all over the UK. Yeah, I think it would be. Um, I, I, I tried getting it from the Thames because, again, as well, I expected the Thames to be like a great source of it. And um, because of like it's renowned for being like a stinking, like kind of river of muck, but it's very silty, very sandy. I couldn't find any actual muck. So, what I learned with the Thames is that, that the mud shifts as well. So, there'll be so one day, it'll be somewhere else the next. Yeah. Because again, that's like if you want the clay, allowing the river to separate out the clay. So, you get these clay slips or like slits um, where it should just like period, like patches along the foreshore when the tide is out that are just basically a really like a, a few centimeter thick layer of clay and if you can find that that's like ideal that's perfect but then you can never find it in the same spot twice really a really nice add-on from how your microbial fuel cells became you collaborating with nature in ways that you hadn't expected and then this was also re reflected in this other project that you did with Emily. The initial brief for the project uh, was we were given uh, six weeks to develop a brand new original biomaterial that was also beautiful and could be used in luxury stores um, which is quite it was quite a steep kind of task and I think we started beginning to look at it that maybe rather than having to develop a brand new material and figure out like its sort of uh, strength and like uh, how flammable or fire resistant it was uh, which would open the door to a whole host of issues we decided to look more at like a new bioprocessing uh, of a kind of normal material such as wood um, and I think initially it came very much from the idea of working again, like with mud and this idea of like things, the cir like circular design and circularity of like, objects. And kind of just realized that if you bury, if you bury the wood eventually uh, over time, it must sort of decay. So the initial idea was to kind of just get, uh, I think we were at the time we were pitching it as bacterial etching. So sort of like taking like bits of wood and then using traditional craft techniques such as like um, creating a wax cover and then etching away the wax and then leaving to leave exposed wood in the patterns and then leaving it in a compost bin to allow the um, composting microbes to kind of eat away. And then you can then at the end scrape off the wax and you'd be left with the pattern. Um, but the more kind of research we kind of did into it, whilst we think that technically that may there may be some viability behind that it's it's the timing it would take i mean already for these pieces i think this is a big setback for it is like the amount of time it takes for these sort of like bioprocesses to occur uh, and we realized like the the heavier hitters inside the compost bins um, and piles is the vermiculture so you've like the isopods the worms like sort of like wood lice all of this sort of stuff so we had to kind of like change tax slightly and i think it started becoming there was it was uh vermi etching instead of bacterial etching and with vermi etching you you lose a slight amount of control in how you can encourage and discourage the wood to be eroded in certain areas but you get you, you speed up the process because they're removing more wood at one time. 
yeah so uh, i think as well for the bacterial angle we started realizing that within compost within most soils and especially within composting soils you have uh, there is bacteria that you can extract um a pigment from uh, and I think Faber Futures did a really beautiful project using, I think, the same bacteria, which is Janthiobacterium uh, lividium. Uh, I think I'm saying that right. Um, and you essentially, you can extract it from the soil, place it onto like a Petri dish, allow it to sort of grow. And as it metabolizes, it releases like this violet pigment. And our kind of like reasoning was that you can take this violet pigment and instead of using it on textiles, we could uh, use it on the wooden panels. So we revisited the sort of the older techniques that we spoke of before of like the wax reliefs and all of that sort of stuff. And then had the bacteria grown in the grow lab at CSM. Um, and then we started taking it and almost like pipetting it onto these exposed areas of wood and allowing it to sort of sink in and stain the wood before then removing the wax, leaving like this ornate pattern behind. So at that point you were getting the, the um worms and bacteria and stuff in the soil to eat away at the wax we had the bacteria the worms working away on some other samples so okay. continuing their their vermi etching and that's also an interesting thing because we were using beeswax because we, we didn't want to add anything artificial into the composting cycle mm. uh, but that too does obviously eat away so it's like trying to get your thickness of wax correct so that it doesn't eat away too quickly before the wood can be eaten into because the animals are eating the beeswax. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's slowly being eaten as well. So like yeah. everything's kind of going and it's trying to get this. <laughs> the timing of which one's going to go first or yeah. Getting and the wood out before the wax is completely gone. <laughs> yeah. And it's like so much like with always the case with like bio processes or bio design, trying to get it to do what you kind of want as a designer is always nigh on impossible and it'll always do something very different i think with the the bacterial dye it became easier to control because we'd removed it far enough from the mud that we had some autonomy over it whereas with the compost bins it's not quite as obvious it takes a lot longer and you lose a lot more control because there's so much so many kind of variables going on um, but then that's part of it. It becomes a collaboration between you and the the bioforms as opposed to uh, kind of overly usurp you expect or want from them. What do you think of this idea of timing of how all these processes we're exploring are going to take much longer and than kind of what we're used to today? Like, what's your opinion on that? I think like traditionally things taking time and being difficult to produce is what gives it value. That's it's a value creation. Um, I mean, if you look at the production of uh, silk from silkworms, like silk became a highly prized commodity with, uh, and again, international trade around the silk roads, but it was valued because it is a, like a beautiful material, very soft, but also because of how time consuming it was to produce it. And it's the same way as like a fine whiskey or like an aged wine, like people are willing to acknowledge that these sort of time processes imbue a value and they kind of and if it kind of feeds into a sustainable system as well then that's just an even bigger benefit and it creates it helps create this luxury sense around sustainability which is something that sustainability normally sort of struggles with because quite often sustainable outcomes are very brown or kind mm -hmm. of a bit naff whereas yeah these longer processes can help circumvent um so do you think there's other materials that can be used in the process you're exploring with 
collaborating. I mean, you mentioned that textiles has already already been used in terms of the dye, but other ways in which animals and bacteria living within the soil can influence the surfaces of other materials? Um, from the research we've done so far, we focused on just purely on wood for like a cellulose-based material. Uh, and we experimented with different types as well. So we're researching varying hardness of wood as well as like color and textures and stuff. Um, so I think we used a tulip poplar, um, pine and mahogany as our three sort of options. Um, and I think the effect that the bioforms all have on each, like the harder the wood, the less eroded or cut into it's likely to be. But I think in, I know that you can get different colors from using bacterial dyes, but using different species of the bacteria. Um, and they also respond differently and create, they can create different outputs based on pH levels. So it becomes almost like pH indicators. So mm. I think by controlling the pH a bit and the using experiments with different species, you can get a different color palette. But then I think what's interesting as well is like, because of the alternating pH levels, I think it'd be interesting to try and experiment with like different types of stone and like creating these sort of reliefs on stone and seeing if like the like say you took some like chalk limestone and tested uh seeing if the increased ph could dissolve away those sections and leave you with interesting patterns at the end um and then the same with i i imagine there'd probably be ways of doing it with metals as well if you used bacteria to strip away the oxidized layers in certain areas and then maybe applying like something that increases the pH level and allows it to rust or something like I'm sure there'd be a way of doing something like that. And then you also kind of start to combat that like timing and value dilemma with the materials that you use as well. If you can use a softwood and you can get the pattern in a faster time than if you use a hardwood, you do at least still have a choice there yeah. which is quite nice as well it kind of feeds into that initial idea of luxury of the hardwoods being more luxurious and the fact that they are more resilient is partly why they're more kind of luxurious i think as well like one like the kind of because we wanted a big part of it is we wanted to include heritage craft but in like a collaboration with like bioforms and biology so a lot of what we were initially looking at was like the it, historically some crafts such as like acid etching were really effective for like creating ornate pieces of like luxury pieces of armor or metal work but it's that you get a really caustic by like byproduct like you essentially just acid that has to be gotten rid of somehow and normally it's not disposed of correctly so i think like if i don't know if it would <laughs> necessarily be me or emily but like if someone decided to try and take it further into like using it for the metals i think that would be a really interesting area to sort of try and try and uh, get some success in what did you find most inspiring about the process I think I love the sort of the idea of the vermietching, but I think the how easy once you'd extracted the sort of the pigment, once you've sort of like kind of farmed the bacteria to get the pigment, um, how kind of how you could apply it to do such different things and how it became like a very versatile material to then kind of work with. I think partly for me, the reason I really enjoyed that is because it's so rare that anything kind of goes according to plan with the bio stuff that it's actually just really nice to have something that's that tangible and then doesn't keep kind of flipping the situation on you. Um, and that you can kind of have more designer control over. And I think that was quite nice. I'd quite like to continue working with them. I mean, you have to deal with a lot of stress and issues 
in the run-up to it, but I'd quite like to work with those kind of materials in the future. It's quite nice that you could also kind of immerse an entire chair into the compost and leave it there for a month. I mean, what were the kind of the times that you'd have to leave things there? Um, well, under, under my desk right now, I still have a, uh, a glass tank filled with um, different kind of like isopods and worms and samples. Mm. Um, and I'm terrified to sort of like take a look because I'm still <laughs> I'm kind of hoping the longer I uh, put off looking at them, the more chance I'll get the effects I want. Um, but we, uh, the LVMH, our kind of get, uh, estimate was between six months to a year to start seeing effects. And also part of the struggle of doing like quite a quick project like this is like it takes six months of the sample being submerged in the compost. And then if it hasn't worked or if you made a mistake, that's six, another six months to retest. So it's like development wide, it's quite a slow one to to master so it'll probably be a background thing for quite a while yet and then also storage of pieces so like i think you, you mentioned like uh, putting a chair fully immersed into the compost i think like more realistically you could start just sort of designing joints of for for a chair and like sort of submerging parts of the chair and then being able to reassemble post sort of post eating This podcast is brought to you by Wendy Teo and Eliza Colin as part of the Narrative of Soy Research Project. This research project is funded by British Council, Connection Through Culture.